This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP, the federal leader in retirement planning seminars sponsored by WEPA. Join NITP for an hour of plain talk on planning your future. You've got questions, they've got answers. Welcome to the October 5th, 2020 For Your Benefit radio show. Today we have Kathy Lavender joining us. She is the founder of Security and Investigative Placement Consultants, a niche executive search firm. I've known Kathy for a fair number of years, and um, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a great show. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk with you. Well, and and likewise. Um, for those of you that are listening to Kathy for the first time, she, she can run the gamut from the beginning of the show to the end, and she'll keep you um, she'll keep you listening. Anyway, Kathy. So how's uh, how's how's the um, oh and sorry founder of security and investment placement consultants investigative uh, investigative mm-hmm. sorry I got my tongue all messed mm-hmm. up with my mm-hmm. m- with my brain so that's okay um, have you found things well you know it's been interesting um, I feel like I'm in a niche that is kind of uh, recession proof or um, can can kind of be resilient in good times or bad times because I focus on people who manage risk, uh, risk in the context of protecting people, physical assets, operations, reputations. So they tend to have uh, backgrounds uh, in uh, physical or cybersecurity or investigative slash intelligence. And One thing that I've seen over the years, and I've been doing this 20 years, is that they need you in good times, but they need you even more in bad times. And so we are in tumultuous times, and um, our business always pivots and follows kind of what the marketplace is asking for. And over the course of the pandemic, it's very clearly moved into uh, realms that will not surprise any of your listeners. We've been very focused on finding people with experience and capabilities in crisis management, emergency management, business continuity, business resiliency. Uh, and if you'd asked me, you know, how was business a year ago, I would have said, well, people are really focused on keeping workplaces safe from violence, from, you know, workplace violence uh, that perhaps begins as a domestic event and moves into the workplace or disgruntled former employees coming back to harm people in the workplace setting or um, travel risk where there was a lot of concern about, um, you know, terrorist activities in major cities like Paris, Brussels, uh, Istanbul, you name it. And so companies were concerned about when their people traveled. So fast forward 365 days um, and now almost you know, seven months into this pandemic, um, and it's a very different world, but the good news for the kinds of people that I work with, uh, the clients that, that uh, retain me to help them, uh, they have legitimate needs that they cannot um, hold off. They have to continue hiring, and what we've seen is um, – a move toward virtual interviews, virtual onboarding, and um, and hiring 
when they have to, not any of the positions that were nice to have, but the positions that are must-have. Okay, so when somebody uh, writes their resume or they draft their resume, Mm -hmm. what do you find that people don't put in or do put in and shouldn't have put in the resume? That's a real great question. Uh, well, the first thing I would say is, you know, you have to sort of adjust your attitude about what a resume is. It is a marketing document, so it's a way for you to communicate what you've done that has transferability and relevance to the reader. So a simple recitation of employment history and past responsibilities does not cut it. So you have to put it through a different prism and the perspective of the reader. And uh, people always say to me, I want, I want, I want to do this. Um, You really can't think about it that way. You have to think about what you can do for the potential employer. So shift your, your viewpoint and your perspective first. And then you have to put a document together that articulates what you bring to the table. Very clearly, what is your value proposition? And so the first thing that people need to do is have an executive summary at the top after their contact details that articulates that value proposition. And that has to connect the dots over the course of your resume and really, really put a fine point on what your uh, core competencies are, your transferable skills and knowledge, and, um, and then you go into your employment history. And the employment history shouldn't focus on past responsibilities. It should focus on uh, contributions, accomplishments, initiatives, results. And if you do that, then I think that's uh, what will resonate with a potential reader. Um, Avoid extraneous information. You know, people don't um, necessarily need to know about everything you've done. If it's more than 10 or 12 years old, it's probably ancient history in most uh, viewers' and readers' minds, so you can collapse a lot of that. Um, and, and, you know, don't, don't give away things that you shouldn't or are not expected to give away, uh, personal details about family or perhaps, um, you know, volunteer activities. I know, you know, people think that maybe that looks good. It rounds them out as a person. I would say stick to your knitting, stick to your business uh, uh, priority here. And then you have to replicate that messaging in your LinkedIn profile. And you really have to have a LinkedIn profile. That's really not optional. I really recommend it these days. So dealing with uh, LinkedIn, do people come to you and say, can you write up the uh, resume or the uh, attractive uh, placement? on LinkedIn? How do you Well, say- um, that's not what we do. Yeah, so we are recruiters. We you know, work for employers to find people who match their job specifications and their particular needs. But I can refer people to uh, people who can write resumes. And anybody who writes a resume these days knows that it's a two-part process, the first part being the actual resume, the second part being the LinkedIn profile, which is simply your online resume. And um, there's an art to that. And if you haven't written a resume or or really polished up a LinkedIn profile in recent years, you're probably not going to have have an easy time of it. It, It's quite uh, an unusual and kind of arcane skill 
So if people are struggling with it, I say go to an expert, but go to a, somebody who really has some good work examples of what they can produce for you. It shouldn't cost an arm and a leg, something in the range of, you know, uh, anywhere between three and $500, $600 at, at the top. Um, and don't expect that you can outsource the process. They are going to have to be very interactive with you to understand what needs to be communicated. Because if they're not, what they produce is kind of pablum. It's a very broad, very generic, kind of um, broad brush, uh, you know, statement about you. And it really will not resonate. So that has to be a process of discovery with the resume writer really drawing out from you what it is that you have to bring to a new employer. Great. Right before we went on air, an email came in and talked about resumes, and it says, how is it best to work up a resume to avoid falling prey to age discrimination in hiring? Great question. Yeah. Um, undoubtedly, there is age discrimination. Uh, no one uh, is very um, overt about it, but there is subtle, probably, age discrimination in some cases. And I would say kind of know your audience. You know, if, if you're uh, applying for jobs in, let's say, sectors where it's a very youthful culture, they emphasize their youth, youthful culture, they emphasize that they're disruptors, that they're kind of breaking down uh, traditional approaches to whatever business they're in. That may not be the best for you if you're at the point in your career where um, you are um, looking perhaps that one last uh, stop uh, along the way. So be smart about you know, who you're applying to, first and foremost. Uh, look for more traditional businesses, businesses that have been around a long time, that recognize and value experience, that like the wisdom that comes over time. Um, and look for code words that um, in job descriptions. If they talk about disruption, reinvention, um, energy, um, you know, contrarian uh, viewpoints or approaches, um, you know, things that just suggest that they are telegraphing, we're looking for a millennial, then don't waste your time. Don't go there. Go for ones that, that emphasize seasoned, veteran, experienced, knowledgeable, deep expertise. Those are code words for the other end of the spectrum, where we want a grown-up. We want somebody who's bringing to bear all of the wisdom and knowledge and experience that comes with many years at um, a particular um, either agency or in a particular particular um, sector or realm. Okay, you've uh, it sounds from what you just said that you deal a lot with people that um, are seasoned, if you will. So, what do you find? <laughs> what do you find regarding perception one has versus reality? Compensation level and or job de uh, uh, desired? Well, you know, that is where the rubber meets the road. A, a lot of people think that, um, you know, they spent years in the government and people are going to want to hire them and they're going to be picked up, um, you know, very easily. And, and sometimes people express that to me in um, a sentiment like this. Um, I plan to retire on September 1. I'd like to take 
four weeks off and start my new job on October 1. Well, that's not realistic. That's not how it works. Hiring is a very lengthy process. It can take anywhere between three and six months. That's not unusual. Um, they hire on, the employers hire on their timeline, not yours. So uh, be aware that um, it's really all about what they want and need and their timeline, not yours. Um, and I'm going to re-emphasize uh, the point I made about what you want to do versus what they need. That's another area of unrealistic expectation. People think, you know, I spent 35 years in um, the federal government or 25 years, whatever it is. Uh, people are going to, you know, eat this up. Uh, that's not the case. One can never predict whether uh, your skills are as transferable as you think you are, uh, they are. So you have to talk to people from your um, agency or environment who've gone on and ask them. The first question should be, um, what did you find that um, you, know, you didn't know when you were in my shoes uh, that you've learned over the process of uh, integrating into the private sector, of making this kind of big change? And hear from them uh, because that's going to help you manage your expectations and be realistic in your expectations. People think that the private sector is, you know, paved uh, with gold and um, budgets are unlimited and resources are substantially greater than in the private sector. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, you know, anything that you're paid in terms of compensation, you're going to, first of all, earn every penny of it. And second of all, it may not be exactly what you think because um, you think, you know, well, I'm going to earn a lot more money in the private sector. The truth of the matter is you probably will because there are additional aspects to compensation um, that could include um, annual bonuses uh, or regular quarterly bonuses, depending on the kind of role. Uh, certainly long-term incentive compensation if you're in the executive ranks. Um, and uh, stock, potentially, if it's a publicly traded company. But in every case, um, that is going to be very carefully parsed by the employer. They have a lot of compensation data. And you're operating on instinct. Instinct versus data uh, is never a good, um, a good way to approach it because you need to be smart with your own data. One place that you might be able to find some data if you're interested in a particular company is a tool called Glassdoor. Uh, Glassdoor um, will give you some information for free, but um, if you really want to uh, dig into uh, more compensation type information, you have to get a subscription. Now, I don't know how expensive Glassdoor is, and it's not something you'd need for long, um, so you might subscribe for a month and then um, and then cancel. But it does compile information about compensation. But the one thing I will say about compensation is compensation is very idiosyncratic. Uh, sometimes people are hired at above market rate. Sometimes they're hired at below market rates. Uh, and, you know, the, the rest of the time they kind of fall in that median group where, you know, it's about what you would expect. And, um, but you can only know what to expect if you're smart and you've educated yourself. Very good. It's time for a break. And so the listeners can listen to our sponsor, WEPA, and what they can do for them. 
Life insurance is a conversation worth having. As a civilian federal employee, you have access to exclusive coverage from WEPA, the life insurance choice of over 46,000 feds and their families. With WEPA Group Term Life Insurance, you can apply for up to $1.5 million in portable coverage at a competitive price. Last year, the average fed who switched saved $375. WEPA is a proud sponsor of For Your Benefit, presented by NITP, Mondays 10.05 to 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. WEPA has been insuring the future of feds and their families for more than 75 years. To learn more about life insurance for feds by feds, visit waepa.org today. Welcome back to For Your Benefit. We're here today with Kathy Lavender. Kathy is the founder of Security and Investigative Placement Consultants, a niche executive search firm. And prior to the break, we talked about the federal side, the private side, and the like. And in your um, years of experience, what was the tougher transition, federal um, career to private or private to federal? Well, um, in Washington, D.C., people do go in and out of uh, government. So um, I, I do know people who've done that, and there are good reasons to do it. You know, sometimes it's a call to serve again. Uh, maybe they had been in the government went to the private sector, um, then got called back uh, for some reason. And, you know, that's admirable. Um, but I don't usually deal with that part of the transition. So the people that I hear from are transitioning after any number of years in the public sector, and they're transitioning to the private sector. And I've seen people who do it seamlessly and do it extraordinarily well. And I've seen people who fall flat on their face. And I tell you this uh, as a cautionary tale, because you have to understand that the missions are very different. There is in most organizations, unless you join a nonprofit, a trade association, or something that is non-commercial, but in the private sector, um, you're going to be in an environment where decisions are driven by profit. And if you can't wrap your mind around that and get on the program quickly, if you can't learn the language of business and understand how business decisions are made and how you can add value in the context of those business operations, then you may fail. And I've seen some people who were very, very um, highly placed in government in a number of different roles come and just land uh, poorly. Um, and they end up getting uh, shown the door in those cases. The private sector doesn't give you corners to hide in or um, rooms in the uh, uh, beneath the, the parking garage, uh, like an office space where you get a stapler and a, and a phone. Um, there is no hiding place there. And if you're not contributing, and if you're not really adding something, and if you're not flexible and adaptable and on the program, then you will be cut loose. And it happens rather um, harshly. So you have to earn your keep, bottom line. Um, so, you know, I, I can never predict who's going to transition well, but do read about um, transitions to understand that it's a very different environment accountability is everything. You will be annually evaluated and you will be assessed quite earnestly. Some do, um, you know, 
assessments across all levels by higher-ups, by peers, by people who report to you if you have direct reports. So there could be 360 evaluations. People do not mince words. Um, there's just no, you know, they don't play patty cake. They are playing for real these. So if you're not contributing, um, you know, you have to start looking over your shoulder because it could be coming for you. Yeah, I was talking with a um, client not um, long ago, and they were talking about a relative of theirs that um, um, got a job, and the job was to do X, Y, and Z. The individual was okay with X and Y, but not necessarily with Z. And they, mm-hmm. they um, this is this was not a sweatshop, but it was uh, a professional uh, service organization, and professional service organizations like others. There's a focus there. It's the mission. It's the job. And um, uh, don't cut corners, but uh, don't let people drag you down. Unfortunately, the latter happened, uh, but th- they couldn't make that transition. Right. And be honest with yourself in the uh, job interview process. If there are aspects of the job that really are unpalatable to you or you know that those are not your strong suits and that's a big part of the role, don't take it. Save yourself. Uh, Save your reputation and prevent a disastrous uh, move like that. But you have to be realistic. You know, you go back, I'll go back to your question about, you know, expectations. I do hear from people from time to time who say, you know, I'm giving you my resume because I'm hoping that you will lead me to a really well-paying job in the private sector where I don't have to work too hard. Mm. And when I hear that, I just cringe. It, It doesn't exist. That job is not there. I don't know what you, you know, what you're dreaming or smoking or whatever, but it's not reality. Um, so you have to, you know, part of the onus is on you to be um, honest with yourself about what you want to do, what you're good at, what you're not good at, and what you don't want to do. But keep in mind that it is not unusual for people to be sold a bill of goods, that the job, you know, they kind of play to what they think uh, the person is going to want to hear, and then they come in and change the the job description substantially. I hear from people who are dissatisfied all the time who say, um, you know, I thought the job was one thing. It turns out to be quite another. And they, you know, reorged or reassigned or six people left. And now I'm doing the job of two or three people. That is not uncommon. So either you have some resiliency and tolerance for that kind of change because it comes with the territory or you don't. But um, be careful of what you wish for. How about, um, you could brag on this, you're working with a um, client, if you will, um, the person that's to be hired someplace. What do you find that they have a perception of, you'd say, you're going to, we're going to interview with XYZ company, and they have a, a vision of what XYZ company is. What would you suggest to somebody that was in that position to study XYZ corporate, what do, what do they study? The the Ben um, and Bradstreet reports. Do they uh, look for articles in the newspaper so they could get a feel before they walk in the building? Yeah, research before an interview is really important. But let me just be clear: 
I don't work for the job seekers. I work for the companies, but um, as because they pay my bills, uh, they they hire us to do the searches for them. Now I am always going to be as candid as I possibly can with with the candidate that I'm introducing. And we say I like to tell them the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's good, bad, and ugly about most most uh, organizations. And uh, I'm not going to trash talk uh, my client. Uh, but I am going to try to tell them where I think the challenges are, whether it's in terms of workload, uh, culture, expectations, taste, um, you know, uh, turnover, whatever it is. I, I like to be straightforward and an honest broker when I'm describing what I think the situation is. And, and because cultural fit is just as important as um, a subject matter or functional fit. Uh, but when candidates are um, potentially interviewing with a company or an organization, they have to really pull out all the stops and do a lot of research, as you've mentioned. Um, check for news articles. Um, certainly review the website to a fairly well. Dig deep into the website. Uh, look on LinkedIn. See who you can see who uh, works there that might be in your functional area where you're applying uh, to see their kinds of backgrounds. See if there's some shared history or uh, perhaps uh, they've been in similar type organizations. Know who the um, competitors are for that company. Read Dun & Bradstreet reports. And if you're getting really serious about the company and their public, uh, look at their um, SEC filings. Read about what the company is saying to shareholders about them. Uh, look for litigation if you're uh, really doing some exhaustive due diligence on a potential employer. What are the contingent liabilities? Um, those are buried in uh, stock filings, SEC filings, um, to see that that could be potentially a problem. Uh, if you don't do your homework on the company or the organization, uh, it can come back and bite you on the rear very quickly. Because um, you could ask a question. When they turn the tables and say, now what would you like to know about us? And you ask something that was absolutely available if you had done your homework, you're going to ding yourself probably to the point of disqualification. Um, and if you haven't really gotten to know them and understand their culture, that's another uh, potential mismatch in the making. So it could be bad for you. It could be uh, bad for them. And the last thing you want to do is um, go into an organization where you are going to be miserable and miscast. Okay, so when you um, see a resume from somebody uh, because you're working on that side, uh, what are you sometimes surprised at that it's just not a good resume, but maybe the individual, maybe the individual is a good fit? There are some people who don't know how to write resumes. Look, their resume writing is not their job. It's not what they've had to do very often, and in some cases, years. And so I get that. I, I tend to be a little bit more lenient when I'm first looking at a resume if I can quickly grasp that they have the core skills and experience. The messaging and the telling of the personal story can be refined and can be corrected. Um, but if it's just a mess, if the resume is, um, if it looks unkempt, if it looks unprofessional, if it looks like um, you, know, you don't know your way around formatting, 
Uh, if it's too lengthy, if it's verbose, um, you know, resumes can, can provide too much information. If there's oversharing in the resume, like perhaps some of the information about the families and what their children are doing or what they, you know, uh, what candidate they volunteered for. Gosh, that's really indiscreet and it's inappropriate. And I think it's a deal breaker for most uh, people who read resumes. It's like, you know, where is the edit button? Um, <laughs> edit what uh, <laughs> edit what you um, are going to present as if somebody on the other side of that, you know, political campaign is, is going to care. Um, or that, you know, at the end of the day, no one really cares, you know, where your kids are in college or what your children are doing or about your dog or whatever it is that you put in there that's just oversharing. Um, so it, a resume has to be a carefully edited document. It really should be two, two and a half pages. A federal resume format will not cut it. Uh, don't ever send that to anybody in the private sector. It's just, a, it's a total mismatch because it lists um, current supervisors, current hours, mm. current compensation. Um, you know, the private sector people are not entitled to that and uh, should not, it should not be in their hands. Very good. When you do that, um, when, you, when you talk to somebody, uh, are they... They, they want to put in things that you know aren't going to fly. How do they take it when you say, you know, we really shouldn't do that? Of course, that's why they came, so that you could, so yeah. that you could tell them that. But Well, the, uh, people who do ask me to critique their resume, I, you know, look, I can't critique every resume of everybody who sends me a resume but because um, that's not my job. <laughs> not, I don't have the time to do that because I get a lot of resumes. But if they ask, I'll usually give them some high-level criticism. And I'll just say, look, here are some, you know, templates and tips that, you, you know, I can share with you. Um, but do a lot of reading about resumes. And uh, most of the time, people are very, very good. And I usually make a joke and say, look, in my first career, I was in journalism, and I have a red pen, and I know how to use it. Um, and so don't take offense. This is not personal. And I also have to say that, Bob, to people who have not done well in interviews, um, that it is not personal. None of this is personal. And I've had candidates that, you know, I thought might be a good fit for a job, and I have a lengthy conversation with them, and I just realized, no, they are not a good fit. And so I have to break the, the bad news to people all the time. Either they weren't selected by my uh, client, the employer, or I'm not moving them forward because I don't think they're a good fit. I think you have to be honest and you have to be constructive and never hurtful, but um, constructive, constructive criticism. Take it, welcome it if somebody gives it to you and learn from it and move on. Because, you know, my job is part discernment, discernment that the person is a good match, discernment that they would be a good cultural fit, discernment that they're um, compensation needs will be aligned with what my client is anticipating paying. And um, so if I don't do my job uh, making that first call as a judge and jury, uh, then I'm not serving my client well, and I'm actually not serving that candidate well. And, and uh, you mentioned doing virtual interviews. 
do, do you? I don't think you should tell somebody this up front, but uh, do you ever get the dog that barks in the back, uh, and then you have, <laughs> and somebody shuts the door, or maybe you know somebody else in the house wants your attention? <laughs> well, absolutely. And, and you know, I think people are fairly forgiving about that right now because in many situations. Children are home and they're being, um, you know, online, they're doing online learning. Um, and uh, multiple people in the households could be working remotely. I think there's a lot more tolerance and uh, forgiveness for that. And, um, but, you know, let's say we go back to um, normal, uh, whatever the new normal is. And uh, you're, for whatever reason, the employer does still want to do a, a virtual interview. Um, the rules going forward, once you know most people are back in the office or uh, kids are back in school, is you know lock the door, make sure there are no surprise uh, entries, whether it's your pet or your your child or your spouse, um, and you know make sure that you've got a, a professional background. You know I'm kind of disturbed sometimes when people view these uh, interviews as as being kind of casual just because they are from home. So I see really messy backdrops or people who appear in t-shirts essentially uh, to interview with me. And that's not going to fly with me, not at all. I want um, a clean, I don't care if it's a white wall and it's bland, it's all get out, that's totally fine. I just don't want to see a messy spare bedroom that's got things stacked on a bed and boxes to the, the ceiling, and then somebody showing up in a T-shirt. Respect me. Respect the process. Uh, I'm not going to put you forward if you're not looking uh, squared away. Now, I don't care if you're wearing sweatpants at the bottom or athletic shorts. It doesn't, it's, it's immaterial to me. But you've got to look really professional from the waist up. It's, it's interesting you say that because... Over a fair number of years ago, we worked with some TV folks, and um, generally it was a guy, a guy with a tie and a shirt on and a jacket. Underneath that, mattress shorts, uh, swimming trunks, or whatever, because uh, they didn't have to get up. But they just they were much more comfortable from the from the waist down than the, they had to be from the waist up. <laughs> It's very common. And, you know, Bob, um, I read something recently that said the number one most searched item during the pandemic was uh, elastic waist pants. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so people, people are comfortable, and I'm all for comfort. But if you're in an interview, uh, it's, you know, it may be comfort on the bottom, but it's business up top. Yeah. Uh, now on the weekends, it's another story. I go in the office and I might of look course. like, how did this guy get in the building? But oh, I'm comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> right. And no one's judging you. That's okay. That's, right. But it's, it, it, take an interview seriously. And, you know, I, I posted on LinkedIn and I, I do, a, if anybody wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm always happy to hear from people, but, but, um, and I will you know generally connect with them. But, um, but I posted about, you know, what to wear in a, a virtual job interview. And my answer is look as professional as you can. It's probably not a suit and tie, uh, but it is a dress shirt and uh, perhaps a, a jacket if you're a man. Women have a lot more leeway to, you know, just put on, let's say, a collared blouse and maybe some earrings and, and they look good to go. 
but um, no one is expecting, you know, a three-piece suit and a tie, but they are expecting a professional appearance. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. So with that, correct. Andrew says, <laughs> respect NITP and let them do their spot. So we're going to take a, a moment and let folks uh, hear about what NITP can do for them. Who do you trust when making your most important decisions? National Institute of Transition Planning has been the trusted source for federal retirement planning, serving new, mid-career, and pre-retirement federal employees for more than 30 years. NITP's subject matter experts bring more than 800 years of collective expertise on federal benefits, financial, transition, and estate planning. Visit NITPinc.com. That's NITPinc.com to sign up for their free monthly newsletter and information about free webinars. Does planning for retirement seem like a daunting task? Is retirement years away? It will arrive sooner than you think. Prepare now to stay on track. Join the thousands of federal employees and retirees who have already attended National Institute of Transition Planning's free monthly webinars to learn more about retirement and financial planning. NITP is the national leader and trusted source for federal retirement information. Visit NITPinc.com to sign up for NITP's free monthly newsletter and webinar. Well, welcome back to the um, closing quarter of today's show. We're here with Kathy Lavender. Kathy is a founder of Security and Investigative Placement Consultants. Did I do it right this time? You did. You know, I should just tell you to use the shorthand. It's SI placement. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I figure the the uh, final um, um, period of time, we should talk about compensation, compensation that somebody maybe is desiring to get versus the reality of what maybe they can get more. Um, so how do how do you coach them not to talk so much about the compensation until they find out more about the job? Well, compensation is, is actually taboo when you're going through the interview process with an employer. They are in the driver's seat, and um, they get to decide when compensation is a discussion topic. Um, now, if you've been pre-screened by somebody in HR or talent acquisition or an internal or external recruiter, they may have raised compensation. You know, I do oftentimes in conversation, you know, sometimes the first conversation with people because I have to qualify the person in terms of what their expectations are. And, um, you know, I, if somebody is um, saying that they must have compensation over $200,000 a year in that initial conversation with me, and I know that this role is going to have a maximum compens total compensation of 150000 then they're out of the price range. They are, you know, above the compensation range. And we can have a very short and, you know, hopefully um, pleasant conversation. And, and I can just tell them, I'm sorry, you know, that's not uh, in the, the price range that my uh, client is looking to, um, to be in. And uh, it's a little bit different, though, when you're on your own and you're not working with a recruiter and um, you're applying through a portal. Uh, if you're applying through a company portal, oftentimes they um, insist that you provide a compensation range. And the way these applicant tracking systems that the company portals employ, um, they do not give you um, the ability to put open 
or to be determined or flexible, uh, you have to put actual hard numbers in. So before you get to that point and you're either painting yourself in a corner with, you know, unrealistic or overly um, over-the-top uh, compensation uh, expectations for the role or the company, um, you have to do some research. And again, I go back to Glassdoor or talking to people that you know who uh, have left and maybe are in similar roles in similar organizations. Um, try to suss that out so that you do not either overshoot the mark or undershoot the mark and um, underprice yourself. Um, it's very hard to do, I realize, because it, compensation is still quite opaque in the industry. Compensation discussions are becoming more common. Millennials discuss compensation very openly much to the chagrin of some employers. But millennials talk and share compensation. Um, but, you know, uh, Gen X and baby boomers were always very tight-lipped about their compensation. They didn't want to discuss it with their peers and didn't typically do that unless it was with a, a trusted confidant or close friend within an organization. So it's much harder to find that information out. Uh, there's also um, one thing that I want to mention about compensation, which is 29 and maybe even more um, jurisdictions at the state, um, local levels have prohibited employers from asking people about their current compensation. So if you're in Massachusetts or uh, New York or California, it is illegal for a potential employer to ask you what you're currently earning. Now, the workaround is they can ask you what your compensation range is, your desired compensation range. So they can't ask you what you're now earning, but they can say, what would you like to earn as a range? And a range that's reasonable is usually somewhere between 20000 and 30000 in terms of the spread, the differential. Um, but you um, you know you you should not um, volunteer that information um, unless you think it really is going to help you in some way um, because if it's if you live in a jurisdiction where legally it's not uh, permissible for someone to ask for your current compensation, then why provide it um, where you can be aspirational is in the range that you put out there. Because, you know, I ask people in New York or California or Massachusetts all the time, tell me about your desired compensation range. Um, as I said, it can be fairly broad. It can, you know, span $30,000 uh, or so. But, um, but you know, if you are looking to earn more money and you felt like you were underpaid in your last job, this is where you can be very aspirational but still be realistic. Very good. Now. They don't know that coming in, do they? So when somebody comes in to know what with you, I shouldn't do this or I should do that. Uh, in other words, if we're talking about know? compensation, they shouldn't start off talking about compensation, but it, it's going to. No, come. I mean, it's really not the job seekers role to ever raise compensation. I know. You know, you don't talk about compensation until somebody tells you they're interested in you and then they want to talk about compensation. So it's just strictly taboo. 
It is, but I mean, how many people come in not knowing that taboo? Oh, well, plenty of people, which <laughs> is a so. problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to make your point very clear. Yes, if you lead with compensation, you are stepping in it at the outset. <laughs> that was well put. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say what it is. <laughs> okay. Ego. All righty, so... Uh, the overall, you've been doing this a long time. So uh, do you find in today's world, I sound like a geezer with that, in today's world, um, uh, the modicum of, uh, of professionalism is much different, any different than, say, 10, 15 years ago? You know, I think it's just different. Um, generations have different work styles and they have different approaches to careers. And, um, you know, I, I'm not going to assign a value judgment to it uh, because I just think that they're, they're very different. They've had different uh, upbringings, different experiences throughout the course of their lives. And they're all valid and, and, um, you know, they just depend. I mean, I hate to generalize about um, generations, but millennials are um, very much keen to sort of do a job um, that has meaning for them and that that kind of works with their lifestyle. And um, I say fair play to them. I think that's totally fine. Um, millennials, by the way, are the largest group in the workforce right now. So things have changed because they approach things very differently. They're very tech savvy. They're very forward thinking. They're very much looking for work-life balance. Um, and so um, they've also moved into a lot of management roles. So depending on, you know, if you're transitioning out, and let's say you've had 20 or 30 years in the government sector, uh, you could be reporting to a millennial. A millennial could be your boss. <clears throat> that may not be the case in the government, but it certainly could be the case in the private sector. So you just have to understand that there are different um, work styles and um, different attitudes about careers. That, I guess that is a perception gap or didn't figure that it would be that. So if um, some middle age or a little bit younger comes in and is is then going to talk after after you? Um, do you ever tell them that the the next person you're going to see is a millennial or a boomer or um, or is that is that gauche? Um, yeah, I wouldn't generally say who it is, um, or in terms of their um, uh, kind of generational or age um, category. But uh, most of the time, people before they interview are given the name of those names of those they'll interview with and a quick check of LinkedIn or just some Googling um, and they can figure out a little bit about their backgrounds, which they should do as part of their preparation. Um, as I said earlier, you know, you can find out kind of where they are in their career and where they've worked before and maybe you have some shared history and that can be a real, um, real benefit. You know, one of the best things, the best scenario that I can think of is when you go in and it turns out that you know people in common. So I call that playing the name game. When you find out that you know people in common, that is a really reassuring and positive development because 
I can assure you that person is going to, after you leave, if they, if they had a good impression of you, turn around and contact that person and say, so what do you think of uh, him or her? Um, and it can be a real plus if they have a positive impression of you. It's a small world, Bob, when you get right down to it. Okay, so if you were coaching somebody to talk to somebody like you, what do you, uh -huh. in other words, they say, well, Kathy, I know how good you are with the interview. Help me with what I should do so that I'll come across better to the interviewer. Preparation. You know, if you haven't interviewed in a long time, you might need a career coach who could help you develop some messaging around what you bring to the table. I think the biggest mistake that people make is being unfocused and and kind of putting their insecurities out there. Uh, I talked with somebody last week who's eligible to leave a, a government agency, and he goes, you know, I just don't know what I don't know, and I don't know what I'm selling. And I said, well, that's the first uh, step in correcting that. You do have to know what you're selling. You can't be unfocused. You know, any conversation whether it's with a recruiter or a hiring manager or somebody, um, you know, who's trying to help you. It's not a session on the analyst's couch. It is a very important career discussion. So you have to have your questions lined up. You have to have your messaging figured out. And you have to value that person's time and not get into, you know, the things that are you're insecure about. Um, you want to project um, positivity and self-awareness. Very good. Andrew tells us we have two minutes at the best. <laughs> so f final thoughts okay. and, and how does somebody get in touch with you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, just look for me there. Uh, feel free to connect with me. And um, again, you know, I'm not a career coach. I'm not a resume writer. But um, I am a recruiter who operates in a very specialized niche. Uh, so if somebody has a background in my niche, I'd particularly be happy to hear from them. But I generally take on uh, most people uh, who uh, reach out to me who have professional uh, profiles. Um, and follow my company on SI, SI Placement on LinkedIn because on a regular basis, I share career information. So, um, you know, it's, it's very um, uh, wide-ranging, the career information that I, I share. I have a daily, you know, kind of news feed, like a lot of uh, people who are very active on LinkedIn. So almost on a daily basis, I share information. I was just posting recently about career reinvention and um, uh, getting through the first phone screen interview and, and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, there are a lot of good resources out there for people. Um, Forbes magazine has a lot of good information. Um, certainly, there are a lot of career um, subreddits, if you're a Reddit person, um, on careers and interviewing. There's just a wealth of information about interviewing, and I think that's where most people trip up once you've got a good resume. Okay. This is well-timed. I think we have all of 30 seconds left. So... Uh... Kathy, thanks for being here. Yeah. And, uh, oh, sure. My pleasure. Yeah. And I would just say to people, look, it's a challenging time, but there will be that next 
opportunity for you. And believe in yourself, have confidence, know what you're selling, and um, and bring some energy to the job hunt. It doesn't typically land in your lap, and it's not typically easy, but there always is a second chapter. Wow. Thank you. What a great ending. Thank you, and we'll do it again um, semi-soon. Andrew, thank you, and we're done. <laughs> You've been listening to For Your Benefit, presented by NITP and sponsored by WEPA. Please tune in next Monday at 10 a.m. for a topic solely devoted to you, the federal employee. This show can also be heard on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search For Your Benefit. Thanks for listening.